This episode is brought to you by Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma. When it's time for an aircraft component inspection, overhaul, repair, or replacement, you need experienced technicians you can trust and friendly service you can count on. Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma, a family-owned business since 1959, delivers just that. Our techs have real-world experience and provide sales, service, and overhaul for piston engine aircraft accessories. We also have limited turbine capabilities such as fuel pumps, starter generators, and prop governors. And we can overhaul propellers ranging from fixed pitch to turbine. Propeller pickup and delivery service is available. And one more thing, mention this podcast to receive 5% off your next sale, service, or overhaul. Visit aircraftaccessoriesofok.com. I continued the touch and goes, and I came around for the third one. I remember eating up a lot of runway on that one, landing pretty far down the runway, jammed the throttle in, lifted off, and I remember seeing a silhouette of trees at the end of the runway. So I started to pull a little more just to make sure that I was going to clear them. So I pulled and pulled and pulled, and um, I mean, the next thing I remember is waking up in the hospital. Welcome to another edition of There I Was a podcast where we put you in the cockpit with pilots in demanding situations and we learn how they flew out of them. I'm your host, Richard McSpadden. Today's guest is Cody Gooden. Cody is a 1,600-hour ATP pilot flying right seat in a regional airline on a CRJ 700-900 series. He got his start flying general aviation at about 17 when his dad introduced him to flying got his private pilot's license in high school, and then had a tragic event occur, which he's going to share with us, and took a pause from flying before getting back into flying and becoming an ATP-rated airline pilot today. Cody, welcome to the podcast. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Cody, you have an interesting story as a very young pilot doing things that young pilots, all pilots like to do. You had earned your pilot's license and you were taking some friends up on a flight to see the city and then some tragedy struck. Tell us your story. So it was uh, back on June 11th, 2013. I think it was a, uh, a Friday night. I'm really not sure, but I just graduated high school and my plan was to join the military, the Kentucky Air National Guard. And go in and eventually fly the um, C-130s out of Kentucky um, with, for them. So With the bluegrass militia. That's right. That's right. <laughs> so you had just earned your private pilot's license, right? Like how, how long had you been a private pilot? I, like I said, I got my uh, private license in February of 2013, and this accident happened in June. So it had been fairly fresh. I think I had about 60 hours. 60 total hours that it would include your student time to get your license, right? Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah, so fairly fresh. And you mentioned you're in a 172 Mike uh, airplane, right? Yep, that's right. Okay, all right. The same one that you had rented since you started flying. And so you were very familiar with the airplane. Yeah, the majority of my hours was in this tail number, so I was very familiar with it. Okay, all right. And I think you mentioned it was a night flight. So how did how did that come about? Why Why a night flight for this particular day? <laughs> I guess for a couple of reasons, you know, a lot of my buddies that I wanted to take or asked to go with me like, had jobs at this point. So they were um, working and they didn't get off until a little later. I know at least that was the case for one of them. So we kind of waited until he got off work and then met us at the airport. And that was uh, the main reason. But on, and on top of that, you know, night flights are, in my opinion, 
more you know visually appealing than day flights that's kind of it all just played in together that way yeah especially around a city you know nights can be really pretty with the city lights below mm-hmm. now there's Definitely. there's added risk flying single engine at night of course, um, of course. in this case you were going to do a city tour and you had your buddies with you and so it, it was setting up to be a pretty enjoyable evening it sounds like mm-hmm. oh and what was the weather like so the weather was was beautiful. It was not a cloud in the sky, but uh, it was very warm. It was a very hot day that day, I think in the 90s. And at night, it was in the 80s, even when the sun went down. So it's very warm. Mm. And do you remember the moon illumination? I don't, but I, I do like to remember there, if there was clouds, there wasn't very many. It was a fairly clear night. Yeah, so it was pretty clear. And the visibility around you, given city lights and all that, where LOU is, uh, Lima Oscar Uniform Airport is, the visibility was pretty good. It wasn't like you were flying off in a dark hole or anything. No, no, it was very, very the conditions as far as the weather were great. Okay, great. So, so there you are, you got your buddies with you and you load up in the airplane and how'd it go from there? Yeah, so, uh, so like I said, all my, my buddy got there after work, my other buddies met us all there and we um, loaded up in the 172 Mike model and started up and you know everything from there was uneventful. I made my call on the CTAF that we were taxiing the runway 33. And, uh, you know, I pushed the throttle in to go ahead and start taxiing. And that's kind of when I first noticed that something was a little off. And it, well, something was different, I guess it was. It was just heavy. And it's, you know, I had to add a little bit more throttle than normal to try to get the airplane to move like it normally does. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I'm used to just me and my instructor being in the airplane at that point. I don't, hadn't really taken many people up, or especially not three. So uh, usually when I give it just a little bit of throttle, it moves pretty um abruptly so yeah so four people four people in a 172 is a pretty heavy load right i mean definitely that's obviously one of the lessons learned in this story but anytime i see four people in a 172 it always makes me pause and look and Mm -hmm. wonder if the pilot has you know done that assessment because there's four seats and if they're the right weight and you got your fuel right and you know then you can do it but you have to really watch that Definitely. So you felt that right from the start. You're like, hmm, something's different here. I did. I did. And like I said, I kind of, I kind of correlated to the feeling you get when you first solo, right? You, you know, you're going up, you're by yourself, and you're just like, this mm-hmm. doesn't feel right. This, there's no way this is supposed to be like. But you know, you find out that it is, and everything yeah. goes fine after that. So. And you hear a bunch of noises you've never heard before, and. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. It just, it doesn't. It feels weird, but you know, after after you're done, you're like, man, that you know that was supposed to happen. So I was like, oh, well, maybe this is another case of that. Mm, okay. Yeah. So, you, uh, so you're taxiing now, you're noticing it's taking more power. The airplane just feels heavier. I think you mentioned that you had kind of done a mental uh, weight and balance, right, in your mind? Yeah, I kind of threw some numbers together. And, you know, and, and kind of one of the things that I, I threw some numbers together in my head as far as our weights. And I, I recall I'm pretty sure asking everybody kind of what they weigh and, and things of that sort. And I kind of threw some numbers together in my head, but I know I didn't sit down and actually write out weight and balance. I did not do that. And I think one thing that um kind of stuck with me and I don't, I can't recall whether this is an instructor or somebody else I overheard in the airport, but this is kind of one of the things that I learned. I guess we could talk about later is I heard somebody mention that, you know, you know, the max gross weight of it, the 172, but somebody said at one point that they'll hold more than they say. You know, something something along those lines and mm-hmm. me being young and impressionable, I kind of, you know, in this decision making process of, you know, should we go, should we not go, you know, throwing this numbers together in my head, I thought about that and I was like, Well, 
it'll hold more than it's and i kind of used that a little bit here which yeah. uh, again nobody else's fault but my own but i remember taking that and using it in my decision process no but i i hear that in your voice you're not blaming others you're just saying that was an influence on you yeah and that's a really helpful point for all of us in industry experienced guys and instructors to realize when we're throwing out comments like that around the airport or the hangar or whatever, there's young pilots that really don't have the experience to know any better mm-hmm. that are, are internalizing that. Definitely. And so it's kind of a dangerous uh, mindset that we get about kind of throwing things around like that. That's interesting that what you're saying is very true. I've heard it myself where people say, ah, you know, they put some fudge factor in all these numbers. Yeah. Yeah. So... Um, Let's pick it up back again. So there you are taxiing out. You're feeling a little heavyweight. And what happened from there? Yeah, so we're taxiing out. I don't remember anybody being um, being on a CTAP. I think we were pretty alone out there, you know, being that late at night. So um, we taxied out. Like I so said, taxied to runway 33, making my calls and everything everything else. And then we got to runway 33, you know, and like I said, did my run up, everything else, everything checked out as far as I recall. So we lined up on 33 and took off. And I do remember it, again, being sluggish. You know, taking up a lot of runway, but we took off uneventfully on three three and climbed out. And but when we took off, it's we were very that that sluggish was kind of amplified at that point. When the wheels leave the ground, you can kind of really feel the airplane how it feels very heavy. I mean, because it is. Yeah, it felt heavy. So, and did you notice your takeoff roll seemed to take a little bit longer? Just in hindsight, did you notice that? Oh yeah, I mean, you like I said, I, I knew what point it eventually usually lifted off at, you know, in normal training and stuff, just me and my instructor. And I knew that we were quite a ways past that, but I guess I was stuck in that freeze mode where I just kept going and just, you know, luckily we lifted off the first time. Yeah. And that's tough conditions because you're overgrowth. I think you said by about a hundred pounds or so. I think that's, yeah. And, uh, you know, in 172, that's a little more than 10% of your, uh, you know, of your useful load. Oh yeah. And so, you know, that's, that's a substantial difference on, on the performance. And it's 85 degrees out. So you're, you're at a pretty hot, steamy night while you're overgrossed as well. Yeah, I mean, that was, it was a setup for failure from the beginning. You know, in hindsight, with how heavy we were and the density, altitude, and everything else playing all together with it. And, yeah. you know, being a young pilot with low nighttime and, you know, everything else, it just kind of, the dominoes kept falling. Yeah, and runway 33 at Louisville there is only about 3,500 feet, which on a normal day is plenty of runway for a 172. Mm-hmm. But, you know, now you've got a weight issue, you got density altitude issues, so it begins to, things begin to start adding up not in your favor, right? Definitely, definitely. So you, you kind of pulled it off the runway, right, as you go flying. And you were going to go do a city tour, I think you mentioned. But but what mm-hmm. happened there? What would you decide then? Yeah, so as soon as we lifted off and I kind of felt that sluggishness in the airplane, I, I got nervous and kind of, you know, at that point I was already in the air. There's nothing I could do. But I, I decided instead of going to the city tour, I was going to do some touching goes in the pattern to kind of become more familiar with that feeling, I guess, is the way to one way to put it and just kind of work off that nervousness of, you know, being sluggish. So we came around the pattern and we did one touch and go. And I remember having a pretty firm landing there. And, uh, but I know that touch and go went on uneventfully. We took off and climbed back out again. I still didn't feel any better at that point as far as the nervousness I was feeling. Yeah. Now, were you letting your passengers know that you were a little bit nervous or you were kind of trying to hide that a little bit, I imagine? Yeah, no, I didn't. I didn't want them to Right to know anything was 
off, yeah. so I didn't say anything to them. But no. you just knew that eh, I'm not flying this airplane as well as I think I should. I'm going to stay in the pattern, get my awareness, sort of get my chops back, my stick and rudder, my feet, my arms moving. And on that first landing, heavy weight, pretty high sink rate, high density altitude, and you just sunk right in and landed more firm than you would you're used to landing, right? Yeah, that on top of being a night landing as well, you know, which I didn't have many of, so it all uh, it yeah. led to a, a rough yeah. landing. Yeah, good point. You had only done the bare minimum for your night training at that point to get your license. If I did more, it wasn't much more. Just so pretty close to the bare minimum. Yeah, so yes, you're really inexperienced flying at night. So okay, exactly. Yeah. So what'd you do then? So then uh, I continued the touch and goes. Like I said, I took off that first time and I didn't feel any better. So I continued the touch and goes. Came back around, did another one, another firm landing, and I uh, took off again, and I came around for the third one, and um, I remember eating up a lot of runway on that one, like landing pretty far down the runway. Anyway, I jammed the throttle in and start, you know, lifted off, and I saw, I knew there was trees there, but there was more back then, and I remember seeing a silhouette of trees at the end of the runway, and I knew they were there because I'd seen them in the daytime, and I remember seeing a silhouette, so I started to pull a little more just to make sure that I was going to clear them because, you know, obviously I didn't want to run into the trees. So I pulled and pulled and pulled. And, um, I mean, the next thing I remember is waking up in the hospital. Mm. And in hindsight, being told what happened, what happened as you see those trees and you start pulling, what did happen? Well, and like I said, know this now a lot from investigators and people that I've talked to with the FAA. And what actually happened was I did, you know, land pretty far down the runway. And um, when I took off, I didn't have much left and I kept pulling but what I didn't do on my touch and go was put the flaps back up. I landed with the full 30 degrees of flaps. Mm. I didn't retract any of them on the touch and go. So that combined with it being hot and overweight and trying to clear those trees, I eventually pulled until we stalled and spun and into the golf course just beyond the, the runway. First of all, did everybody survive? Yes, everybody survived, yep. Oh, thankfully. So you must not have been too high when you stalled and spun then. I think it was about 200 feet, if I recall correctly. Really? 200 feet? That's remarkable. I have to tell you, I was thinking it must must have been more like 50 feet. Um, for, for that height, for everybody to survive, that's that's incredible. Any serious injuries from anybody, or everybody walk away okay? Or I, I mean, everybody had pretty serious injuries from it. Okay, yeah. Including you, right? It took you a while to recover. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I was, like I said, I, I broke both ankles, so I cast both legs, collapsed lung facial reconstruction, I mean, teeth knocked out, a broken jaw, I mean, it, all the funniest stuff. We could be here for days talking about it. Yeah, and thankfully, no fire. Yeah, thankfully, no exactly, exactly. Yeah. So can you walk us through, like, what happened afterwards? People reconstructed, you stall, spin, you hit, I'm sure, at a relatively nose-low attitude. So were you pretty much straight in, or what was your impact angle, do you know? There's a picture of the uh, the crash on online somewhere, and it almost looks vertical or pretty close. Yeah, which is what I would expect on a stall spin accident is that you would impact in a pretty vertical attitude. Did everybody in the aircraft have shoulder harnesses on? Yes, I'm pretty sure. Yep. I'm, I'm certain that saved some lives then, the shoulder harnesses. So you hit, and then thankfully there's no fire how did you guys get out of the airplane? Did people come to rescue you? Were you able to get out on your own? Well, and I've heard a couple stories, I mean, throughout the years. But oddly enough, I think there was somebody walking through the golf course at 10 o'clock at night that called 911 and said they saw an airplane fall and they heard screaming and stuff. 
I don't know. I, I don't know how truthful that is, but I know somebody found us pretty quick. And um, emergency first responders got there, and you know we were all bleeding pretty badly, and you know luckily made it to the hospital, and everybody survived at that point. Yeah, it's such a success story that I'm sure that after you know you were just really a young kid, 17 years old, only had your license for a couple months, taking your friends up, and you have this you know horrible accident happen. You have some pretty serious injuries. How long did it take you to recover and talk to us about the mental process of you getting going back to flying after something like that? Well, I, I guess to clarify, so how long did it take me to, to be able to talk about the accident or how long did it take me to get back to flying? Well, I guess a little of both. I'm just really wondering after that, it being such a young age and such a young pilot to have something like that happen just kind of walk us through how did you get over that? How long did it take? What are the steps you went through? Well, and there's kind of a lot to unpack. I really, and I mean, even up to this podcast that I really haven't, this is part of my still part of my healing process of getting out there and actually being willing to talk about it and, you know, what happened. And, you know, I think that the biggest part in the beginning was accepting that it was my fault. Cause when something like that happens, especially that young, you know, you, I guess for lack of better words, you kind of feel like a loser and that's, you know, you don't want to believe it was all your fault. And it, it was very mentally taxing for a lot of years. And, you know, I didn't, I didn't want anybody to know about it for a long time. I didn't, you know, I've always wanted to use it as a, a learning tool for other people, but I didn't really want to talk about it. I didn't want, I, I felt ashamed of it. And, sure. You know, it was really hard to, yeah. to, to talk to anybody about it, but um, that's kind of the mental part of that you were asking about. It. Yeah. I would imagine that is a pretty typical mental process that you work through after that kind of an incident and especially at such a young age to deal with that yeah so you work through that and you're really sort of continuing uh, to work through that and i think you made a really good point there that there's this tendency to have and to be too critical and feel shame on yourself Mm -hmm. when you're really always doing the best that you can do using the best judgment you have, which is the only thing you can really ask of yourself in a situation, right? Yeah, there were some mistakes made, but they were honest mistakes with the best of intent. Yeah, and I think on top of, you know, knowing that I was the one that caused my buddies the harm and stuff that they experienced from it, just it was just hard for a long time. Sure. But um, thankfully, I'm getting to the point where I can, you know, accept that it was my fault and, and try to go from here and use it to help somebody else out. And, you know, I, and especially I still, am a flight instructor on the side. I, I try to implement that into my instruction and, and telling people pretty much my story and not to scare anybody, but to teach them kind of that respect of, you know, this is, it's fun and it's very enjoyable, but you gotta, it's not a game. Hey listeners, do you love aviation? Did you know that general aviation contributes billions to the U.S. economy every year and is a vital pipeline for military and commercial pilot force? AOPA works to ensure the vitality of the aviation industry and supports our freedom to fly. Join us and become a member now at AOPA.org. You'll become part of a worldwide community of aviation enthusiasts. We'd love to have you. Find out more at AOPA.org. The laws of physics do not discriminate. No. They have no pity on age. They have no sympathy, right? So, Definitely. So that's the mental process that you worked yourself through. How long did it take before mentally you decided you were ready to pick back up flying again? 
Well, that's kind of the odd part too. Like I, I wanted to get back flying relatively quickly. I mean, that, the passion for flying never left me. And, and kind of what that went for me is I remember I was still recovering and I went to live with my brother at this time. Cause he didn't have any, he had like a one level house with no steps. I went there, I was in a wheelchair. So I had to go somewhere with no stairs. My parents' house at the time had a bunch of stairs. And so I went to live with him and, um, I was at home alone a lot of the time and I had a lot of time to think about it. And I remember you know, I did a lot of sleeping at that point. There's really nothing else to do. <laughs> so I did a lot of sleeping. I would, I would always have dreams of flying. I would, I mean, whether it was taking a 172 to a grass strip or, you know, going in a long crop, you know, I would always wake up with a, a big grin on my face, just dreaming about flying. And no matter how much I told myself, this isn't for you. It almost killed you. You know, you had your mom and you're talking about this isn't safe. You know, you need to try something else. It's, but yeah, I couldn't get away from it. You know, that's the bug had bitten me and it wasn't going anywhere. And I, I realized that pretty quickly and eventually decided that I loved aviation so much that I was, if it was going to kill me, I was going to let it, you know, oddly enough. Yeah. So I, I got back into it. So that's interesting that you were mentally ready to go back flying before you were physically ready to go back flying. Definitely. Yeah. I couldn't get away from it. You know, I could see that being a, a double-edged sword, you being, you having all that alone time at your brother's house because you could really get yourself in a descending spiral there, just thinking over and over and being inside your own head too much. But it sounded like that was real healing time for you. It, it was a little bit of both. You know, I kind of battled both sides. Like we talked about with the mental aspect of knowing that, you know, I had altered my body's life in some way. And that at that point, I hadn't gone over, like we talked about, haven't really recovered from the mental side at that point. But I was in the early processes of that. But I was definitely, as far as the flying, I knew during that recovery process that it was, I couldn't never go fly again. And, and as I said, I got to the point where I kind of had to make that decision of if, you know, I knew that accidents were possible at that point, obviously. And I kind of decided that I didn't, I didn't care. I, I had to get back into it. Yeah. So you knew flying was for you. You had some work to do, you know, otherwise to deal with it, but there was no question you were going to get back flying as soon as you could. What about the physical recovery then of that? Talk through us what all you had to go through and how long it took. So most of the surgeries that I had were, were in the I was in the hospital for about a week. So most of the surgeries I had happened during that week. But when I got back and um, started to recover at home, the main thing that I was dealing with was my ankles. Like I said, I had casts up to my knees for, um, for each ankle and I had, you know, screws put in each of them. So I couldn't walk for a couple months, if I remember correctly. So that was kind of where I was you know, recovering from that. And once I got those casts off and kind of completed my physical therapy and, and my ankle issues, you know, recovered. I believe I talked on the phone with my old instructor one day and we kind of talked about, you know, he was asking about how I was doing everything. We kind of conjured up the idea of going back up in an airplane. And I can't remember exactly how many months it was between all this. It's pretty blurry for me, but I know we went up relatively soon after it, if I'm not mistaken, and, and went up in a small airplane again. So did it take you a year before you were back in the cockpit flying again or less than? I would say... Between the time the accident happened and that first flight with my old instructor again, it was um, I'm pretty sure it was less than a year. Okay. And then from there, you just sort of gradually worked your way back into flying and feeling confident. Did the FAA do anything punitive to you, enforcement action on your license, or talk to us about their response? Well, as far as the FAA, the, um, so obviously when the accident happened, they put my license on deposit. So they kind of, they had that until I was ready to go back and take my 8709 kind of recheck. Yeah. And that went pretty smoothly after that, your recheck and all that. Yeah. So it kind of backtracked a little bit. So what, as far as my progression with getting back in the airplane, um, 
so after the accident, you know, I told myself flying kind of wasn't the, so I started going to a community college and eventually pursued a, a degree in engineering is what I decided to do. You know, eventually I, I knew I wanted to get back up in the airplane, but I didn't have the money. So mm-hmm. luckily enough, I went to Uville and I'm in their engineering program. They have internships or co-ops, they call them, where you actually get paid and you work full time for a whole semester. So uh, I was fortunate enough to get paid enough to pay for tuition for the next few semesters. And also whatever I had left over, I used to go back and start retraining with um, Randy Sizemore from the FAA and, um, you know, keep working towards the 8709 ride. And eventually, I think it was 2017, I retrained, took the 8709 ride and I got my license back off deposit. So about four years or so after the accident, yeah, you had gone back through taking your recheck, and you were back being a private pilot again. Yes, yeah, I got my license back. Uh, yeah, in 2017, and like so between college and everything, it took about four years. Yeah. Wow. So, looking back on that now, what are your biggest lessons learned from that incident? Well, I guess there's a couple of them. The biggest thing I learned was, and I guess the things that I implement with teaching is one of the things that I wish, I guess I would have understood better and things that I try to do now is um, show my students what max gross weight feels like before you experience it first. Because a lot of what you do in training is just you and your instructor. So you never really experience it until you're by yourself after you get your license doing what you always wanted to do is take friends up. So that's one thing that I guess kind of learned or wish that I would have learned back then is how that felt before I, I did it on my own. And obviously, we talked about the kind of the choice of words and kind of how you say things. Because like you said, you you hear things along the way, like it can hold more. or You know, if you're on approach, you can go below minimums. They build that into it. You know, little stuff like that that maybe a high-time pilot knows, but a a young, impressionable guy doesn't. So that's one big thing I learned. And a lot of these are tailored towards how I teach now with what I learned. And good decision-making as well. And at the FAA, a lot of what I teach my students now, they have a, a FRAT is what it's called, Flight Risk Assessment Tool. Yeah. It's a, it's just like a score sheet, essentially. You can go through and talk, you know, did you have eight hours of sleep? Is it nighttime? Are you rushed? Or, you know, whatever. And you can kind of score yourself and see where you're at. And I think that's a, a big thing that I learned is really assessing yourself physically and mentally. Because if I would have stopped and did that back in 2013, I would have realized that it was a bad idea from the beginning. Mm, yeah. I call it risk stacking, but it comes from that frat tool where you do a flight risk assessment and if so many risks stack up, then you get into the yellow and then eventually the red, where it's like flying not recommended, right? Exactly. And a frat will help you with that risk stacking. And so in this case, we can look at it. You're a relatively new pilot, first time you've flown that many people, and first time you've flown your friends, your buddies, right? That That's a risk element to take up friends like that. And then you're at night, you're at high-density altitude. Mm-hmm. And you've got a lot of weight on the airplane. You end up being overgrossed. You don't think you are, but you end up being overgrossed. So we can see how all those risks stack up. And if you eliminate any one of those, you probably would have been okay. But stacking all those up, then they end up being too much, especially for a young pilot. Yeah, exactly. And I wish I would have put more emphasis on that. And I definitely do now. And I teach that to my students for, you know, the just preparedness, I guess, and, you know, the physical assessment of yourself and, and, and mental as well. Huge. I think there's a couple other lessons here, Cody, that I'd like. You're a CFI, so I'd love to get your input on this as I just hear you tell your story. One is that feeling that it's just not quite right. Maybe not on the taxi out because you're taxiing out and it just feels heavy, but you know you're heavy. So, okay, 
But then on that first takeoff roll or that first landing, when you're like, this just isn't right. In fact, as I remember, you took off and you were going to go right into the city tour and you said, nah, this doesn't quite feel right. <laughs> Paying attention to those little senses, you know, the hairs on the back of your neck or however you want to describe it. Paying attention to that, those are there for a reason. You know, they are giving you an indication that there's something that you can't quite put your finger on, mm -hmm. but it's enough to say, let me just put this back on the ground or just stop wherever I am taxing or whatever until I can figure out what that sense is telling me. Mm -hmm. Definitely. And then how about heavyweight full flap approaches? Talk to me about your philosophy on that and how you teach that. Do you teach pilots to use full flaps when they're coming in at max gross weight? Well, I guess it depends on, I mean, the winds in different conditions. I mean, if it's a pretty calm night and there's, you know, not too many factors playing into it or pretty calm day, a lot of times I do, but I mean, I guess it really depends. Yeah, kind of situational dependent. But I always talk to people about being really careful about whether or not you really need full flaps when you're coming in at max gross weight. Mm -hmm. I have a lot of time flying a Navion. A Navion is a really heavy, dirty airplane. And when you're at max gross weight, you put full flaps on that thing. That thing will drop like a rock whenever you're coming in and you pull the power back, you know, to flare. Mm -hmm. you, better, you better be ready to land when you pull the power back because it's coming down. <laughs> but then most importantly, if you ever had to go around, it's a heavy go around when you've got that much weight in full flaps. Yep. So I will usually advise people to just be careful and make sure you really need those full flaps. A lot of times you'll find a partial flap approach especially when you're like a 172 or a Navion or a Bonanza or anything, will give you plenty of buffer in your stall speed, and it's not near as demanding to land from a sink standpoint or to go around if you have to go around. No, I would definitely agree with that. Like I said, it's it's kind of how I teach it. It's just very situationally based. And like I said, that's a very good point as well with the, with the go around. And If you have plenty of runway, it's, a lot of time it is better to come in partial. So it just depends. Yeah, it's kind of like, do you really need the full flaps, you know, for to, to land that short? And yeah, exactly. Most of the time, the answer is no. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And then your short field technique, you know, you're a young student pilot, you're flying at night, you see those trees out there and they get your attention. So you start doing the normal reactive, which would be to pull back on the yoke. When typically, you know, short field or over a 50-foot obstacle a good technique is to get airborne and level off and accelerate into the obstacle and then begin a gradual climb just to miss it, right? Yep. And I wonder if you, I know your memory's kind of tough, but as you look back on it, would employing that technique maybe have been a better outcome for you? Yeah, building some airspeed maybe down in ground effect or something probably would have been a better way to try to clear the trees and get above. But I mean, I, I think it was kind of, I, I noticed the trees kind of after the fact. So at that point, I was up and out and already slow on airspeed. And if I had leveled off, I probably would have got, I see what you're saying, definitely. But I think it was probably kind of after the fact when I noticed the trees and too late. Yeah. So what I've seen is that when you're working with students or even ourselves and you're in the instruction scenario, Okay, get show me a short field takeoff or show me an over a 50-foot obstacle. Everybody's mindset is right. They know exactly what to do. They've been trained. You know, they level off. They accelerate. <laughs> yeah. The difference is sometimes it sneaks up on you, and in the real world, you are in that situation. You just don't recognize it yet. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. so you don't quite use the right technique. And I could see how that would totally be the case with a young pilot at night, got his buddies on board, heavyweight, not feeling real good. 
and not really recognizing that's the scenario you're in. You need to employ the technique you learned there. Yeah, and that's that's a lot of what it was. Very well put. Yeah. Well, I'm so thankful that you all survived. And is everyone else doing as well as you are, you know, physically in terms of injuries and that sort of thing? They've recovered okay? Yeah, definitely. Everybody recovered and they're full functioning and everybody's everybody's doing well. Very thankful for that. What a great news story that is. Uh, That is so rare to have a stall spin accident, four people aboard, vertical impact at that height. And everyone survives and everyone recovers. And thank goodness there was no fire. Yeah, very, very thankful. Very blessed. Yeah, a a miraculous story. So thankful, too, for your willingness to share your story and talk about your lessons learned on what was a pretty hard night for you so long ago. And really glad to hear that you've recovered not only physically but mentally. Yeah, well, and, and thank you guys for giving this platform to kind of really help myself continue to heal and get my story out there. And hopefully somebody hears this and takes something away from it and, and doesn't make the same mistake I did because it's better to learn from somebody else if you can. I wish we could log the accidents that don't happen because of people like you that share their stories. And it makes it so real for people that they can sit there and think and they get the experience without having to have the trauma of the actual incident. So they've almost been there, and then they know how to react should they get there, or they know how to prevent it. People like you willing to share your story saves lives, and we're so thankful you're willing to do it. Very thankful that I was given the opportunity. So, again, thank you guys for for letting me do it. Well, anything else, Cody, that you want to talk about that we didn't cover in your accent or lessons learned or anything else? Well, I think one big point that really scared me from the beginning that um, I'd like to point out for anybody out there that does want to continue – a career in the airline industry, even after an accident. I went on to an engineering career for about three years. And, and along that span, I realized that I, I I knew I wanted to go fly and, and at least give it an airline career a try. But I thought, and I told myself that you've had an accident. Nobody, why would anybody want you to be, you know, I kind of played that game with myself of you're not worth it. Nobody would take that risk on you again, especially not in a jet full of passengers. And, and I just, I want anybody listening to this to understand that that's not the truth. And I'm, you know, went on, had a, a continuing an airline career now and been through training. And I'm, I'm very thankful I didn't let that stop me from applying to a job and, and really living out my dreams of being an airline pilot because I you know, left engineering, started this training and completed it and got type rated and I haven't looked back since. So that just that's a, a big point I wanted to make. I'm really glad to hear that, that an incident like that, that you can learn from, even though it was a pilot mistake, you step back, you go through all the process to do your recheck, you get your license back. And in the long run for a career, it doesn't harm you. And I'm really happy to hear that. Yeah, it's, I, like I said, I told myself that for a long time. And I'm glad that um, you know, I had some good help along the way and good uh, influence on me to push past that and keep moving. And I'm very glad to be where I'm at today. So, Yeah. Well, glad you're still flying GA and your CFI. You have an awful lot to still offer the GA community. And really happy to hear that you're launched and moving ahead on your airline career. Best of luck in both. Thank you so much. That's a powerful story from Cody, and so thankful he's willing to be candid and share that night with us something we can all learn, and especially as younger pilots. And one of our big takeaways from that is going to be, we heard him say as a young pilot, he'd heard older pilots, more experienced pilots say, oh, but these planes can carry more than the book says it can. And that statement caused him to relax his thinking about the requirements of flying within gross weight 
within parameters. And so for all of us, we can learn to be very careful about that mindset and about those kind of comments around an airport and who it might be influencing. We're so thankful that everybody survived. To survive a stall spin accident from a couple hundred feet is just short of miraculous, and we're thankful that happened. Thanks for joining us on this edition of There I Was, alongside our producer, David O'Leary. I'm your host, Richard McSpadden. Until next time, fly safe. Hey, listeners, if you like these podcasts and you'd like to help us continue providing them, please consider a donation to help our efforts. Go to aopafoundation.org slash donate. That's aopafoundation, all one word, dot org slash donate. And thanks for your support. There I Was is produced by the AOPA Air Safety Institute. If you'd like to hear other episodes, submit comments, or submit your own story to potentially be featured on the show, please visit airsafetyinstitute.org slash there I was. Thanks for listening.